Welcome to Ubu Dub, and you'll be hearing the interview with Craig Bell from Rocket from the Tombs in just a few minutes, where he talks about that first moment he walked into the rehearsal room all the way through to the last tour that the band did. But I wanted to let you know why it had been so long, and that's because we at uh, the Ubu Project's headquarters have a new project called DPK TV. And we're live streaming three weeks out of three Sundays out of four of each month um, to our Patreons. And you can find us at patreon.com slash ubu. It's $5 and for that you'll get at least three hours of live entertainment from David Thomas and other musicians with music. Uh, archive videos, never before seen live footage, uh, the cabinet of crap, which has proven to be quite popular, the lyric lotto, and so much more. So please do forgive us uh, the delay in this latest podcast, but come and join us on patreon.com slash perubu and see what we're doing there as well. In the meantime, here's Craig. Craig Bell. What is your earliest music recollection? Uh, the I was always a big fan of the radio, so I was listening to the radio since I, as long as I can remember. And, you know, so it just whatever I could find, I mean, you know, 1950s rock and roll was probably the first stuff that I was listening to uh, music-wise. Uh, I was just all over the dial. I used to keep a, a radio log of of stations I could find around the country. So I would listen to anything, country, R&B, small stations, big stations, gospel music, stuff like that. So I, it just, I was more interested in finding where, where in America I could find, or Canada I could, I could, you know, receive a signal from. Yeah. And through that, it turned me on to a lot of, a lot of different kind of music early on. But, I, you know, it's the popular music of the day. I, the first single I bought was a, a little pop song called Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot. Oh, I know it. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, from there, that was my first first record purchase. And were your family uh, musical? Was it a musical household? No, not really. Not really. My mom was uh, a big fan of Sinatra, and she would play his records, and she would play, you know, they had some big band records and things. My dad was into bagpipe music. Oh. So, <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So we had, so we had that, and, uh, but we were all encouraged when we were kids to uh, play an instrument, uh, learn an instrument, learn something about music. Through school and stuff like that, you know, we had choir in school. We had choir at the church, and we had uh, took trombone lessons. I took clarinet lessons. Really? And they didn't stick. (laughs) So, when was the first time you picked up a bass? Bass guitar was uh, sort of handed to me when I uh, met Jamie and uh, Jim Crook and joined Mirrors. They already had two guitar players, and they sort of handed me the bass and said, here you go, figure this out. Where were you, who were you, and what suddenly projected you into the mirrors? I wanted to join a band. I wanted to play in a band since the Beatles, just like every other kid in America. When the Beatles hit, you know, we all wanted to be in bands. Uh, Mine was a wee bit different. I actually... uh, my moment was when I saw the Jerry the Pacemakers movie 
at the Beach Club Theater in uh, the town next to mine in Rocky River, Ohio, in uh, the summer of, I think it was 1964, sat through that three or four times with my friend Dave uh, one Saturday afternoon, and on the walk back home, we both decided, oh, we want to be in a rock and roll band. My only problem was that there was no way, as long as I was living under my father's roof, that I was going to play a guitar or have a guitar or anything like that. His idea of all of that was that that wasn't real music, that there was none of that happening here. So up until the time I graduated from high school, I would just befriend people who were in bands and stuff like that. I was the guy that was there. Yeah, let me come with you. I'll, I'll pull your ramp for you. That kind of stuff. And uh, But once I graduated from high school in 1970, I started looking around to play in a band. Uh, when I came back, so I went to California early, uh, later in that year when I returned uh, in 1971, uh, the Velvet Underground were coming to Cleveland and playing. This was after Lou Reed quit. It was the Doug Yule Velvets. So I went down to the Agora and I ran into Jim Crook, who I had known from a few years before that, he was dating a friend of mine, his then soon-to-be wife was, uh, was a good friend of mine in high school. So I knew Jim, and he had just gotten back from uh, military service, and uh, I hadn't seen him for a year or so, and we were talking, and I asked him what he was doing, and he said, oh, you know, me and my, my friend are we're going to start, start a band. And I said, oh, really? I said, I'd like to get in a band. And we talked some more, and we talked about records and things, and uh, he invited me over to his house and to meet Jamie. So I went over there, uh, brought some records. We spent the day listening to records, and they played us some tapes. And uh, we talked, and after, after probably a couple of visits, it was decided that I was going to be the bass player. And uh, Jamie handed me a bass that they had. I think it was an old Hagstrom eight-string that only had four. That only had the main four strings on it. And he showed me how to tune it. And he says, "You just got to figure out the rest for yourself." So I just started playing, and we started rehearsing. We uh, played a few times, and then decided we needed a drummer. And I remembered a friend of mine from high school who was a guitar player in a band. So. Why not ask him? So I asked Mike Weldon, do you, uh, you want to be the drummer in this band? And uh, he says, sure. So he joins the band as the drummer, and uh, off we went. Wow. And pretty much learned, just uh, learned by playing. Playing and listening to other people and things like that. Just uh, picked up what I could. And did songwriting come easily to you in those early days? No. No, I made a few a few meager attempts. Also, I was up against a pretty good songwriter, Jamie Climate, and uh, he had so many songs. Jim had songs. They had songs they had written together. These guys had been playing together since high school. So, I, uh, the, my first few years was more like a learning thing. It wasn't until wasn't really until I came back from the mili my military service, which was from seventy two to seventy four that I really started writing songs. I had written a few songs before that, but mostly it wasn't until a couple of years later that, that songwriting came to me. And after a few false starts, you know, I would come up with this idea and I'd take it to Jamie and say, what do you think? And he'd just go, no. <laughs> and uh, so I'd go back and try something else. And, uh, and finally I came up with this song, Slow Down, 
which was kind of like a velvety to to chord band. Jamie liked that, so he worked with me on that song and helped me develop it, and that was my first song. started coming a little bit easier but it's never been easy i i've always had a struggle writing songs because i'm you know it has to feel right to me before i can even bother to go any further with it well i mean you could say if it comes too easily you're probably not doing it right you know so um it seems it comes so easy to other people but maybe i just don't know their process but i know for me i know what works for me and it's just you know i if i have an idea i try to put it down somewhere. If I have a little snippet of, of, of uh, lyric or something, I write it down and maybe I'll come back to that stuff years, months later. And just when I'm like, okay, I've got this basic idea, do I have anything I can use? And I'll go back and look at things. And this album I just finished making here uh, last year is like that. There's stuff on there, there's snippets of it that may go back five, 10, 15 years. Mm. But but it was put together and structured up, you know, and built into songs in the past year. So fast forward, and I mean, you were living in Cleveland, so were you aware of this guy, Crocus Behemoth? I knew about Crocus as, uh, as a columnist, and uh, that's how I knew of him at that time, yes. So did you hear about Rocket from the Tombs before you joined Rocket from the Tombs? I did not. I uh, might have seen something about them in passing in the, in the uh, paper because David did, uh, uh, Crocus did have, <clears throat> I heard about them <laughs> in the paper because uh, Crocus did have a column and when he was doing something, he would announce it, but I never saw them perform. It wasn't until Peter approached me uh, in I think late in fall of 1974, and asked me to come down and audition. That he explained to me, you know, well, we've got this band with uh, this guy Crocus, and he's got all these songs we've been working together, and uh, we want to try to take it to the next level. See, that's interesting because I don't think David would ever use the word audition. I'm not sure that David's actually considering that he's ever had anybody for an audition. So, how did it feel walking into that rehearsal room? feeling like you were being auditioned? Well, 
I was, I mean, I was asked to join, and uh, I considered it an audition because I didn't know, except for I only vaguely knew Peter. I mean, I knew him as as a local musician. I had seen him play. He would come to Mirror shows with him and his wife Charlotte were big fans of Mirrors, and they, in fact, I think Charlotte herself was probably at every show we did in that at that time. And uh, I only knew him that way. When he approached me, I wasn't really sure because he said, "Well, I got these, you know, I got these two two rock and roll kids, man. They're gonna really, you know, they're really." like rock guys and uh, I've got and this guy Crocus he's got these great songs and we've been you know we really got something going here and we want you to come and play bass and so I wasn't sure what I was getting into so I go up there and uh, I considered it an audition uh, no one ever said you passed the audition no one ever said you're in the band it's just sort of like uh, okay see you next Saturday yeah or whatever yeah. you know see you next time so can you do you have any recollections of that first time in the oh yes i do i i remember walking in there and uh meeting cheetah for the first time how did that go (laughs) oh it was great he was i mean it was great the first thing we've sort of i remember having our instruments on and we sort of look at each other and uh, i goes okay what are we going to do you know what do you know you know, and I said, I don't know, what do you know? He goes, oh, you know any Kiss? And he starts playing Black Diamond. I, of all the Kiss songs, that's probably the one I, I kind of knew. So we just started messing around with that for a little bit. And that was going okay, you know. And then I said, oh, you know, do you know Foggy Notion? Or, you know, Waiting for the Man or something by the Velvets? And he goes, oh, yeah, you know. And, and I just remember him and I playing a little bit, maybe for half an hour, just the two of us. And it was like, yeah, boy, these Peter was right. These guys do rock, you know. And then uh, Peter and, and David were there, and we uh, ran through a few songs. I think the first the first song of uh, Rock for the Tombs that they showed me was So Cold. And I just thought to myself, okay, I know this song. I know how to play this song. I like this song. Let's do this. And I, I do believe that the first day that we played and I may be wrong because it might have been a couple of days later but I do that was one of the first songs that stuck out to me and I said wow then they then uh, it was 30 seconds over Tokyo and I was like oh shit I have to be in this band that I mean, was I mean those two songs right there just not I mean they knocked me for a loop right from the get-go it was like this these guys are serious this is this is serious stuff
30 Seconds Over Tokyo has become a legend, really and truly. But I still can't quite fathom how the musicians would have taken that instrumental, you know, about two thirds of the way through or whatever. And it's it sounds somebody quoted about the the new Perubu album. It sounds like they're angry at the music for existing. And I think that's a perfect description for Rocket from the Tombs, you know. So. Just explain the the rehearsal room uh, mood, and uh, I mean, was it must have been so exhilarating? It was. I, you know, there's all this, like you say, tension that everyone feels in the music. I didn't feel any tension when we were playing it in those days. You know, we were just all on this this road of discovery at that time. That was that early time when when we were working towards making the MMS tape. We were on this road to discovery and it was just, you couldn't wait, speaking for me on this, couldn't wait to get up there and start playing. And, you know, there were new songs coming in. There were new ideas coming in. There was so much to work on. It was, uh, it, it just, it consumed, at that time in my life, I can't, I don't even remember. I know I had a job somewhere, but I can't remember what it was. You know, because I had to pay rent and things like that. So, but I can't even remember what the job I had was at the time. I was just so involved in when's the next rehearsal? When are we going to do some shows? You know, that period of time, the fall of '74 through through the winter, was just wow. It was it was magical. when I moved to Connecticut and I started my own band when I started Saucers that's the first thing I did with those guys was I said you know we have got to get up here and just practice and we practiced every day yeah. for at least a couple hours 
in the early, you know, starting out. And, and I learned that from being in Rocket was that if you're going to do this, you just got to get up there and do it and do it and do it and do it and do it, you know, until you feel you're ready to, you know, get it out there. So David's put on the rocket from the tombs page on Ubu projects that it was like a a band of two halves. You had the adults and the kids, and I'm presuming he means you were in the adult section. Um, what what? How would you sum up the band atmosphere? Because you always come across as very almost quiet, really, in comparison, and quite serious in comparison. Um, so how did you get on with those vivacious? if for want of a better word, characters that were in the band? I, like I said, my, it was my first meeting of David, uh, Cheetah, and Johnny. And I vaguely knew Peter, but uh, shortly after that, I moved in with Peter and Charlotte. So really, uh, you know, I was spending pretty much 24 hours a day with Peter. Uh, Cheetah, just, he was, God, when he turned 18, I think the night we started the recordings for the MFS tape, I was 20, I was, I think the week later, I turned 22. So even though it was only like three or four years difference, it seemed like, you know, he's like this young kid who's just like really just, let's go for, you know, everything was on a left. Yeah. and ready to go all the time. And, it, and that enthusiasm would, would wash into you, too. You would go, all right, let's go. Let's do this stuff. Um, when we weren't rehearsing, we weren't really hanging around that much. You know, we didn't hang out. Yeah. None of us really hung out. I spent time with Peter because I lived in the same apartment with him. But there wasn't a real sense of, like, we're all, you know, it wasn't like everybody living in a house together kind of thing. Yeah. So the energy and everything was in the rehearsal studio. Mm. And it was all focused at that time. And it was, I loved it. I mean, I just, I couldn't get enough of it. I learned so much in that, in that uh, 11 to 14 months that I still to this day use. So that infamous final gig, um, there's one report that Cheetah was on his back for the entire performance on the stage, and David only remembers it being like maybe half a song or something, and he says then he got I read, On the television show, yeah, Cheetah just, he fell over at the beginning of the set. Yeah. He didn't spend the entire night on the floor. No, no. no. But, uh, but there was a moment I do remember, in fact, there's that one picture of all of us across the stage like that, and uh, I think that that might have been after because everybody sort of got this look on their face like, what's going to happen next? But I do remember looking over and I'm like, oh, Cheetah's on his back. What's up with that? <laughs> and, uh, but after that, he recovered. And, and we, there's recordings of that show, you know, and it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a disaster. Yeah. You know, there's, there's some good stuff on there. Yes, no, I mean, I, that, that, is, that has kind of become kind of legend, but no, I don't remember being on his back either okay. for anything but a short period of time. Yeah. So, I mean, those live recordings, they were what kept the Rocket from the Tomb's name alive. They just became this underground sensation. Um, and you all got back together, I think, in 2003? Yes. For the um, Day the Earth Met Rocket from the Tomb's album release. Um, mm -hmm. How was that? It, it, it was uh, it was very strange. 
What were the differences that you, maybe not even at the time, but on reflection, um, have been able to identify? Was Cheetah a little bit calmer? Was David a little less bossy? <laughs> uh, no, but, uh, but it didn't matter. It was, it was back with the same people. You had that feeling. When we got back together, you had that feeling that we, you know, we all knew each other, whether we had seen each other yesterday or 10 years previous. We all understood what we were there for. Yeah. Uh, as we went along, maybe that kind of changed, but I was very happy to be working with him again. I was very happy to uh, to be playing that music again, and it just it felt right. It just felt great. But also, it was under the caveat that uh, that David had said, almost for the first day when we were got together, the three of us, uh, and talking, I think one of the first things David said was, don't expect this to last. You know, and I took that to heart. And yeah. I thought, okay, well, then let's make the most of what we've got. Yeah. I don't think we accomplished that, but we sure did a lot. I wish, you know, I think we were capable of more, but I understand why that didn't happen.
Well, two more albums came, Barfly and Black Record. Um, you were telling me the other day that you're very proud of Barfly. You've been listening to it a lot recently. Yes, I have, and I am. I've always, I've always liked that record. I mean, I, I didn't like uh, reception it got. You know, there were a lot of people that that just said, "Oh, it's another Peruvian record," and it's not. It's no. not even. I can't even put into words how wrong that assumption is. Yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> Yeah, but it definitely wasn't the day the earth met Rocket from the Tombs, or even Rocket Redux for that matter. That was the band 25 years ago. This was the band then. And that record has great claims, great songwriting on it. And, uh, and yes, it, it, you know, if you, if you play one against the other, you're going to go, okay, it's, it's, it's different, but, it's still the same band. Because you had all aged that much and learned different things and been playing with different bands. I, I agree. I think a lot of critics, they, you know, they want to judge you on, on what you've done previously. So if you're not giving them something that they can relate to what you've done, they're, going, they're not going to be able to look at it as objectively as you can because you're trying to show people I do this but yeah. I also do this and I do this and I can do that and I can do that too it's all don't you know we're not we're not here to be uh, pigeonholed into will you do that I think it was the tour of Barfly where David was hospitalized um, and missed half the European tour well I had seen him pre uh, a couple of months previously uh, when we rehearsed in Cleveland and he had had the thing on his face, and we had remarked, you know, that looks pretty serious there. Goes, yeah, I'm going to go get it looked at. Uh, and then came the time to tour. I got on a plane here in Indianapolis and flew to Newark. When I landed in Newark, Steve was waiting for me at the gate, and he goes, uh, uh, David's sick, and David's in the hospital. It's really serious. We don't know what's going to happen. He may die. Mm. And he goes, we can turn around and go home now, or we can uh, we can get on the plane and go over there and figure it out. And I said, let's get on the plane and go. And everyone else did too. And yeah. We ended up. I remember that was uh, the ten. What I call the ten days in Berlin. Yeah. And we stayed at that hostel. The promoter. And, uh, we had no money. We had nothing. We had to return the van. We had to. We had to drive to. What was it, Antwerp? Yeah. They had the merch at the at the first show, which had, of course, they canceled the early show, so we had to drive up there, which was an overnight drive, pick up the merch, overnight drive back. I remember, I think we stayed Dusseldorf. I, don't I forget where, where the town was, but we showed up at like four in the morning at this hostel, and there's nobody there. It was like pulling up to a farmhouse, and we're like, should we knock on the door? Should we blow the arm? And finally, we found someone to let us in and got some sleep. But then we came back and we were in that hostel. We had no money. Uh, the promoter, I guess, had fronted us some euros, so we at least had some day-to-day -to, -day to keep us going. And I think we were only getting, I, I think we were getting daily updates from you and everything, but, but we still just didn't know. But 
we were just all under the, well, we're going to do this. He's going to be all right. He's going to come. And, and finally, like you said, we drove to Paris. And we, did, we did the abbreviated shows, and it was it was heroic on his part. I'd only known David for a couple of years at that point. I've never seen him in this mode, but I actually had him at one point. He he was in the wheelchair, waving his stick, saying, I will not let my brothers down, while I ran him out the hospital in his hospital gown. I with you and Claude and you wrote some of the black record um, together. Right here in this room black record is a fantastic record I love that record yeah, yeah. In fact, right here if I, if I turn this chair around where I am right here right this spot was where the bass parts were recorded yeah. spooky yeah. and I remember working down here with David on that stuff and thinking to myself this is that band this is the band right here this is what we started to be, and this is what we are. And yeah. here we are 30, 40 years later, yeah. and, and we are what we wanted to be. And then you went it's out. A, it's a very good feeling. The, the tour of that, that album was insanely good. Insanely good every single night without fail. I think that... It was- with there were some good times. Amazing, with uh, Gary and Buddy as well on guitars. I mean, it was, and the thing was, it wasn't really quite so angry anymore. It was, it was like proper, like you'd been playing it for years every night and were completely note perfect. You know, know I mean? A lot of that goes back to Berlin because we were there for those 10 days with nothing to do of the four of us and we, had the opportunity every other day to go to this rehearsal studio and just play the songs, just the forms, and uh-huh. play, play, and uh, that, I think, uh, formed that band into a unit.
and you're right. I love playing. I mean, I love playing with Richard and Cheetah too. I mean, there's just I remember so many nights being on stage and looking to my left and seeing Cheetah and David looking to my right and seeing Richard like right here, like grabbed by his shoulder, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm playing with some of the most you know revered musicians of this era. This is fantastic. And then I got to say to myself, well, wait a minute, that's me too. I have to do that. Wait, I'm supposed to be doing something here. Absolutely. So I, there were some great, great shows. Um, always, I, I can't ever remember being on stage and not wanting to be there except once. What you were talking about earlier was the, the final Rocket from the Tomb show uh, of the original era when it was just uh, one person left walked up the stage, another walked up the stage until it was just almost like no one there. Yeah. And it was really sad. It was sad. It was yeah. just so sad. Uh, you knew it was coming. I mean, we could tell it was coming. But just to have it end like that was just really... We haven't talked about Perubu at all, rightly so, but you are a Perubu fan. Um, absolutely. So, I mean, how... I just got the new live album, which, by the way, is absolutely killer. I had it on, um, you may know Chuck Bowie. Oh, yeah. Uh, Chuck uh, stopped by. He was on his way back from Florida. He's going back to Chicago. So he stopped by, and we had dinner last week. And I put on the album, and it was in the house, and we're out on the porch. But all of a sudden, you can hear David speaking. Yeah. And it was like he was in the room. It was just, it was like my ears picked up. I said, oh. What's going on? <laughs> when I had to go back into the room, he was uh, giving the intro to Heart of Darkness. Yeah. And and then they started playing the song, and uh, just like, well, I just had to stand there and stare at the, at the stereo. It was just fantastic. It is a problem. But I think I think you would mention somewhere where record companies don't like live albums from bands, but here is a band that needs to have live albums because the performance of those songs can take off and take so many different, go so many different places. Yeah. If, yeah. if, they, if you let them, and just some of the, the Michelle's playing on, uh, on, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, the, one this, the mayor, on the mayor's album. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. It's fantastic. Oh, Leading the band through things. I came across one of the original accounts books from a European tour in the 80s. And I wanted to ask you, you've been in several bands now. Is the uh, David Thomas approach unusual in as much as he is so fastidious with the business side of things, the accounts, the per DMs, the the payouts and all that sort of thing. I mean, for one thing, everyone gets an even split of the profits from tours, et cetera, et cetera. Is that unusual in a band? You know, I, I it's, it's hard for me to say because I studied at his, at his knee. You know, he, everything, the way I run my bands and things like that, I learned from him. Uh, I've always, you know, been, you know, if we, the band makes money after we pay our expenses, which would be our rehearsal space and sometimes things like that, if we had any money, we always split it up evenly between band members. 
when it came time to make records and things like that, well, you know, songwriting credits, that's it's up to the songwriter, you know, but uh, if we were out working as a band, I always, I learned from his model. I, and after working with Rocket in the last 15 years with the tour books and that, I never got that precise with it. We're handing out, here's your tour book. Every day you had, you knew where you had to be and what time and everything. But I did have all of that worked out before we went out on tour and everybody understood, you know, we got to be here. We got to be there. This is how long it takes to get there. Yeah. So we got to get up and get going at this time. The term truck time. Yeah. 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 Probably become almost universal with any band I've been involved. I got simply saucer saying it, you know, <laughs> truck time. Truck what, time. What is truck time, Craig? And, yeah. And truck time is in the truck, not outside the truck, is, in no, the truck. Not, yeah, not coming downstairs, <laughs> not sitting in, not sitting in the lobby. Truck time is it's your ass in the, the truck. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I learned that from David. Um, I have toured with some other people that have been a lot looser, and, and you know, we've paid for it. Yeah. We think, I remember, uh, I can think of an incident with when I was working with the Gizmos. In fact, it's one of the reasons that um, that I, I stopped, wanted to stop working with them was that they just took it too lackadaisically, and, and it caused problems. Yeah. And why do you want to call, and why do you need more problems when you're already away from home and, and off your regular schedule and everything, yeah. you know, why add something that's, that's totally unnecessary? Well, and like, also it's the, it's the easiest way to lose money is to, is to not be organized. But, I mean, I know some people resent perhaps the rigidness of, of, the, uh, of the rules and all that sort of thing. Oh, but, of course. I mean, you know, it's not very rock and roll, is it, kind of thing. But it's hard work. You know, it's, it does work. And, and yes, this is rock and roll and stuff like that, but it's also a life, you know, it's, it's your livelihood. Yeah. It's David's livelihood. And when, and when you're dwaddling, you're taking money out of someone's pocket. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, if that's if that's too capitalist for you, and that's too too much, uh, that's like too much of a uh, bad vibe, man. Well, maybe you're not in the right band. Yeah. But boy, uh, every book every book I've been reading lately about from uh, from Howlin' Wolf to uh, to Elvis Costello, you know. You've got to have some kind of freaking organization or else it's just going to be chaos. And when it's chaos, then it's nothing. And when's the Craig Bell biography going to happen? Uh, this is part of it right here. I'm just sort of throwing it all out there. I'm not going to write it. I'm going to have, I want somebody else to write it. Okay. So I'm just putting all the information out there for them. They can go find it. You know, it's all there. I'm not going to write a book because then I'd have to tell the truth. And I don't want to do that.
Put a 